Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. Happy New Year to all our listeners and viewers. It has been just a momentous year, ending on a high note. Dig Life Deep is now ranked among the top 1.5% of podcasts worldwide, tracked by Listen Notes. We'll have lots of very interesting announcements in 2023. Larry King was once asked, what is the secret of highly successful individuals like Bill Gates and the late Steve Jobs? And his answer was simple. Successful people in business, the arts, entertainment and in public life are driven. To be successful can often be exhausting, challenging, filled with disappointment and major setbacks before hitting that magic summit, before taking the Oscars and the rewards of a job well done. My guest coming up in a wee moment can speak to all of that in spades. He is Tony Saliba, CEO of Liquid Mercury, formerly known as Mercury Digital Assets. Tony is a world-renowned investment, trading and crypto expert. He is an options trading pioneer, master trader and board member of the Chicago Stock Exchange and he is an investor in nearly 100 companies. Tony spent many years on the floor of the Chicago Board Options Exchange where he saw the booms, the busts and booms again. He took a major financial hit in his early career that would have driven away many of us to the kind of despair that would make us quit the trading game or any other pursuit. Tony Saliba did not quit. He stuck it out and thrived and prospered. That kind of fortitude and capacity to get through the tough times may possibly be rooted in his childhood. Well, I uh, I can't say I was born a poor child, although I was born on the wrong side of the tracks and I lived in an enclave of, uh, of uh, tradesmen in one of the northern suburbs of Chicago. So by world standards, we were very well off, but by U.S. standards... And definitely the uh, Chicagoland area and suburb standards, uh, we were, you know, right about on the poverty line or thereabouts. And uh, my mom had nine pregnancies in 11 years. I was born when she was uh, just before her 19th birthday. Uh, my dad was a carpenter. And um, so I learned my, my mom would um, walk me around. Uh, on a on a paper route at five years old, and I would hang those um, advertising mailers that they used to have with the little green rubber bands. Chicagoans and Americans would know what I'm talking about, and would put them on doors uh, doorknobs a couple days a week, and I would get fifty cents for doing that. And my mom would uh, put it in an Alka Seltzer jar. It was a anti acid tablet about the size of a quarter. We'll have more from Tony Saliba in a wee moment. Tony is also the founding member of many companies in the trading and tech industries, such as Efficient Capital Management, International Trading Institute, Liquid Point, and more. Tony currently maintains a global team of staffers in offices around the US, the UK, India, and China, helping companies achieve high rates of growth and identify initiatives to unlock lock exponential value. Tony was one of the featured experts highlighted in the top rated book Market Wizards by Jack Schwager and Tony was recently featured as an expert for a series of fascinating articles with Business Insider. Tony Saliba even owns a stunning golf resort in a place dear to both our hearts, the Emerald Isle. I refer of course to Ireland. Before we pick up my interview with Tony Saliba, it's first time for our regular segment of Future Shock 2.0 with workforce trends expert Ira Wolf. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Ira Wolf, welcome back for Future Shock 2.0. We're hearing increasing talk about the four day work week. Is it realistic? Is it going to happen? Yeah, absolutely. Is it realistic? It is. Um, so the past three years, we've certainly seen a dramatic shift in the way we approach work. 
Um, not surprising, um, recently, the four-day work week keeps popping up again. And companies seem to be moving from accepting this casual Fridays to a policy of no Fridays at all. And that's their solution to dealing with the demand for flexible work and also work-life balance. But it's a concept that's been tossed around for decades. And like remote work, serious conversations about it grew exponentially, starting with the pandemic uh, nearly three years ago, after years and years of resistance. But here's the problem. The four-day work week seems to be like a simple approach to helping employees achieve more flexibility and more work-life balance, but it's not an off-the-shelf fix. So here's a couple of examples. The four-day work week in its simplest form means Fridays off. In a 40-hour-per-week society, that means working four 10-hour days. Mm -hmm. Well, that immediately creates a problem and excludes a lot of workers because many of those workers require childcare. They they need to get home for their kids after school. They're working 10 hours. That's not going to work. Some of them have transportation challenges, uh, especially frontline workers. They split parental and caregiving duties. So there's a lot of uh, two-income homes, and somebody works first shift, or somebody works second shift. So there's all these challenges that employers don't think about. They think that we're going to give you a great benefit. You don't have to come in Friday, but we're going to extend the hour. Now, the, the other problem that happens is Friday's not the day off they need. Maybe they have coverage. Maybe they have another spouse. Maybe they have a caregiver. Maybe their their parents or their grandparents can watch the kids or do something. So if you're going to have a four-day work week, does that mean Monday through Friday? Or does that mean four of the other days? Could you take off Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday? Uh, and if you don't, if you acquire people Monday to Thursday, that means there goes the flexibility offer. There, there is no flexibility. You have to be here four days a week. There's no flexibility in that. Another twist on the four-day work week is in some organizations, more in Europe, this is occurring. The four-day work week means you work four eight-hour days, get paid for five. So when, when you read the headlines, four-day work week, this is going back to 30 years ago when they talked about you had Friday off and the demands and the environment and the workplace and the labor markets were completely different. So another twist on that. Uh, another one is uh, that many companies are using this in an incentive, a four-day work week as an incentive to get people to come back to work. But it's really cutting the commute out one day a week enough incentive uh, that it's going to allow employees to stick around because four days of commuting and some of this traffic these days is, is pretty tough. And yet these are the simple questions. Now, here's where the fun begins with the four-day work week. Let's say a company offers remote work or hybrid work. Does a four-day work week mean I don't have to log into my devices, answer emails, attend meetings on the fifth day? Or is it just that I'm home and, hey, we still expect you to be nearby if we need you? So I think you're getting the picture. Uh, we pull back and look at this four-day work week trend that looks like a simple solution for solving employee demand for flexibility and work-life balance, but it's definitely not a solution that fits nicely into one box. Now, looking forward, uh, if we look into 2023, 2024, I think we're going to see a lot more attention given to the four-day work week, and especially as employers scramble to do things to keep employees happy, to attract them, to keep them on their payroll. I think we're going to see a lot of stories about why the four-day work week won't work or can't work. But keep this in mind. The problem isn't that it can't work. The problem is the way that it's interpreted and implemented, because one a four-day work week isn't something that fits everyone. Thank you, Ira Wolf. And let me take this opportunity to wish you and yours a happy new year and a prosperous one and great times with your podcast and all your many projects, Ira. Thanks very much, John. Same to you and to all our listeners. Ira is a workforce trends expert, a top five global thought leader in his field, a Hall of Fame speaker, a TEDx talker, and host of the top-rated Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization podcast. And on Thursday, January the 12th at 11 a.m. ET, that's Eastern Time, mark your calendar, you can catch me with the team of the Odeon Capital Conversations podcast on a live webinar hosted by Ira Wolf and Jason Cochran of the Geeks, Geezers and Googleization podcast live on LinkedIn, YouTube and Facebook. Odeon Capital Conversations features Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group, and Matt Van Alstein, 
Audien co-founder and managing partner. Audien Capital Conversations is now one of the top-ranked Apple podcasts in the business news category in the US, Canada, Europe, and in Asia. And some of the latest episodes cover the big changes underway in our global economy, inflation, labor trends, the markets. We covered China, Russia, the war in Ukraine, and we have a special episode on the demographic crisis facing America and our globe. So Odeon Capital Conversations should be on your listen to list of popular podcasts. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived in Philadelphia. Local time is 3.05 p.m. and the temperature is 67 degrees. At this time, you are now free to use your cellular devices. You know that feeling when you get to turn your phone on after the plane lands? You can have that feeling every time you drive. Make sure your cell phone is stowed away whenever you are behind the wheel. Visit StopTextStopRex.org, a message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. My guest is Tony Saliba, a truly energetic businessman and world-renowned trader who got his start, as they say, trading options in Chicago and is now an expert on the traditional markets and on the crypto and digital markets. He was featured in the bestseller Market Wizards by Jack Schwager, and he even owns a beautiful and stunning golf course in Ireland. You can also watch this episode and many of our previous episodes of Dig Life Deep on our YouTube channel, also called Dig Life Deep. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Tony Saliba, welcome to my show. I'm really honored to talk to somebody who is regarded as a market wizard. You were featured, we all know, in that fantastic tome, uh, Market Wizards by Jack Swager. And you've been in the business for quite a long time. You started out as an options trader. You've worked in the various markets and you're a successful businessman. And you, you have a lot of interest, a lot of wide interests, but maybe we could just start at one of the big news stories at the moment, crypto. It's in the news. Sam mm-hmm. Bankman-Fried, um, he was in court today. He was in shackles, led out of court. Quite a humiliating fall for that gentleman. And I won't pile on with all the grief and the outrage, but I'd just like to get your take on it. What, what do you, I mean, did anybody see this coming? Well, um, scam bankman fraud, as I have called them for quite a while, but uh, uh, they at least today they got him to get into a suit somehow. <laughs> you know, yeah, right. For the first time. Um, <laughs> this, um, I, I can't say that I saw this coming, but I will say that in the summer when the Voyager and Three Arrows and Luna um, issues were all popping and he and his FTX crew were coming coming to the rescue everywhere. They were always involved. They were always catching these falling knives. I kept saying to my team, that just can't continue. This is a bottomless pit. Nobody, no serious trader would expose themselves that quickly. They would wait till the dust settles and pick up scraps if if there were going to be any, right? Um, So, uh, but there were um, like Terry Duffy from um, the CME, he called them out in the spring and a couple other uh, podcasters who interviewed him. One guy, I forget his name now, but he said, if I ask a guy how he made his money and he can't answer that question quickly, you've got to question him in his entirety. I totally subscribe to that. Um, this is very unfortunate for a lot of unsuspecting um, customers. And, and uh, the larger investors, the uh, private equity and VC firms, I don't feel good for them either, but the, it's the little guy and gal who invested, put their money in an account, and it was stolen from them. That is just unbelievable. And this really doesn't have a lot to do with crypto, except that he did use uh, his token to leverage. But this was fraud. Um, I also say to my team, we were around heavily 
trading around the Enron time, John. And uh, that fraud didn't cease trading in energy futures or energy energy contracts. Uh, the, the vehicle um, with Madoff was equities and options, and that didn't have a ripple effect in the trading of those asset classes. So this is really about uh, fraud, uh, corruption, uh, look deeply into the politicos, both sides, uh, taking big money, money going to Ukraine, the criminals in, in the Ukraine sending their money back to FTX, a huge money laundering swirl, I'm afraid, that the American um, taxpayers end up holding some of the tab. Yeah, it, it's truly extraordinary in its scale and scope. And you mentioned uh, Bernie Madoff. Uh, he ran, from what we're told, and as it was accused of, and went to jail for us, uh, of running a Ponzi scheme. And um, Sam Bankman-Fried has been accused, essentially, of running a Ponzi scheme uh, with losses estimated at $8 billion in or around. Investors who lost with Bernie, a lot of them got their money back now they may not have been made whole but they got a substantial portion back and this was real money this yes. was real cash what's your take on what may happen to investors and recovery in the case of ftx right well well so i didn't realize this until um when the f when um freed kind of did his mea culpa the day after the election here in november and i started digging into it the uh, Bernie Madoff investors, from what I understand, um, across the board were um, regained close to or slightly above 90% of their investment uh, because the bankruptcy court clawed back uh, early withdrawals of profits, you know, of, of winnings for some, from some of the accounts. So, so that happened, and that's a good thing for those um, yeah. Madoff investors, but with with um, the FTX scandal, you have, um, I heard uh, this morning that it may be upwards near a billion dollars was sent to the uh, Dem Democrat National Committee here in the U.S. Um, that politicos, congressmen and senators are saying, well, maybe we'll give it to charity. No, 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 no. You give it back to the people whose money it was. No, no virtue signaling about giving it to charity. That's not your money to give. It's those that belongs back to those accounts that were defrauded. So I think if if there is a justice here in the United States, and I know he was multinational, they'll seek that out, claw that back, the investments that he's made, his parents' um, houses, um, the the uh, media that he bought off and advertised in, uh, they can claw it back. They've done, they've done you know far more difficult things. The Justice Department, if they have the resolve, it sounds like a lot of dirty money. A lot of dirty money, and it, it has taken a toll. Um, before we um, started recording, you mentioned you know how, how is this impacting. The crypto market it's taking its toll and uh, across the board where people are a little more wary pulling back the volumes have dropped off but um for the most part institutions um are shaking this off maybe they've delayed uh by a quarter their expected deliveries um most of the retail um trading has uh, subsided to a degree as you know people don't want to get burned by the flame. But, you know, there was a Wall Street Journal uh, story this week about, um, you know, basically uh, a solution without a problem or a currency without a need or something uh, some in, the, in that vein. But um, there's still quite a bit of infrastructure being built out. There's, I believe, there'll be a pretty fair renaissance to all this. But just with a little bit more caution or maybe a lot more caution, which we've always said, we come from traditional finance, we've never called these trading venues exchanges because there needs to be a separation of functions. You would never trade stocks with an exchange that acts as your broker and your banker and your clearing agent. Um, so in traditional finance, there's pretty bright lines, there's checks and balances when where your money is flowing. And um, some of that should come to crypto. I don't think they should hit it with a sledgehammer because there is a lot of good value. And 
I think Americans should be wary of that because this is a uh, alternative form of value that has for 13 years now, next next month will be 14 years, um, has broad reach and broad usage. So I hear you saying there also there should be more transparency in crypto and there should be more outside entities which are not connected with an individual exchange in the crypto space. And these outside entities should be doing whatever, clearing or administration or audit or custody so that there's more investor protection. Yes, absolutely. Well, in traditional finance, and I spent my entire life, uh, adult life, registered and still am registered in uh, as a broker-dealer, although my crypto company um, is not because it's a technology company and it's uh, delivering services to institutions. Um, in, you know, we have FINRA and SEC and NFA and CFTC. Uh, in the two, um, you know, securities and futures worlds, respectively. Um, my issue with overregulation is um, if you're not solving for a problem or um, de-risking or helping eliminate uh, the potential or reduce the potential of non-trading risk, everybody should know that they're taking trading risk when they make trades, but it's the theft or corruption or graft that uh, needs to be um, uh, wrung out of crypto. And I love it when people say, well, but crypto, isn't that where money laundering happens? Oh, man. So you mean for two centuries with fiat currency, we never had money laundering? I mean, <laughs> human trafficking was born on the backs of the greenback and the and the Deutschmark and, and the lira and everything else. You know, Believe me, we want to stamp all that out, but but crypto can be audited. Okay, mm -hmm. so so mm -hmm. that that uh, blockchain capability is not something you get with um, with fiat money. Uh, so I think regulation to make transparency, as you said, so that customers uh, like we're partnered with uh, the exchange Gemini, and they have a web page that shows in real just near real time their uh, assets in and out, both fiat and uh, digital, so that you can see that they're not leveraged. They um, um, have a uh, a proof of reserve right there. That's important. Um, FDIC mandates that brokers uh, that are uh, carrying brokers, you know, that actually hold funds and not just an executing broker or an introducing broker, uh, has uh, a margin level um, that's required, and um, I think that's should be the case with crypto exchanges. Okay, um, that's not a tough thing for anybody to uh, agree to. But the transparency and the separation of duties. Yeah. So, so you see a future for crypto? Uh, yes. I mean, I think that there's um, a lot here. There's a lot of different usages, use cases, and the speed of money. I mean, you want to move your own capital from one point to another in the banking system. You have to make an appointment. It sometimes takes days unless you're, you know, extremely well connected. And that's just not right. And um, I think, you know, governments want to crack down on this to eliminate that freedom and prevent an individual from um, controlling their own wealth, whether it be small or large, um, I don't think is right. And I think crypto helps. I mean, we can transact in crypto on our on our smartphones, um, make purchases at um, you know ubiquitous establishments like a Starbucks or or others. So it has a um, wide range of usage, but it also allows for the speed, the movement of money, the speed of money to, to happen instantly, which could be a bad thing if you're not careful, yep. but is a very good thing. You know, Mexico's largest revenue stream are remittances from the U.S. Yeah. Those fiats are going over, you know, in wire transfers or in checking accounts and crypto allows it to happen instantly and and basically frictionless with bitcoin and 
Ethereum ATMs. It's clearly not going away, but I mean, all the old arguments and what the critics say is um, it's volatile. Look at how it has crashed over the months. Um, it's Is it a widely accepted medium of exchange? Can you pay your taxes in it? Not re No, you can't pay your taxes in it. Um, it's not really backed some, by Uncle Sam. Some states you can. Ohio uh, is a state that I know of that ex I, I believe Ohio and a few others except uh, Bitcoin. And I and I I would bet, John, that the IRS wouldn't turn down Bitcoin. To pay well, that, well, that's the question. You see, uh, local state taxes. Yes, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, yeah, you are correct on that. But can you pay Uncle Sam? You know your your federal taxes. Will that day come? I mean, maybe the answer is yes, and but it'll be at a set rate, or there'll be yeah. there'll be some um, proviso there. Right. Yeah, and I you know I think there's exchange rates. You know. I mean, I can't I can't pay the IRS in euros. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. I had to exchange them. Um, I, I really think the technology aspect of cryptocurrency and the ability to uh, monetize um, miniature activities. I mean, you can take Bitcoin out eight decimal places, and it's just it's just more modern. You know, mm -hmm. quite frankly, and mm -hmm. I, but I don't I don't want the greenback to go away. I don't think, I mean, there's a place for dollars. Absolutely. And it should, we should maintain it. The problem is the government always is devaluing our dollars. So um, you can't really offset that. You yeah. don't have that choice. Well, that's interesting. You bring that up and you're a trader and an investor and a businessman. And I hear that and I read about it, about the dollar being devalued and we could one day lose our position as the reserve, the major reserve currency of the globe. Could you see that happening? Well, this the movement with, between China and Saudi Arabia, you know, the petrodollars is, I think, our, one of our biggest pillars, strongest pillars in as a reserve currency. Um, yeah, I'm afraid that could happen. I don't I don't think it's imminent. I don't think it would happen, um, you know, in the next five years or something like that. But things that you don't think will happen for a while, all of a sudden you wake up and go, they just did that? I yeah. mean, oh my God. You're eating your words, right? <laughs> yeah. The, to, the, the consequences of that just could be so far reaching. It could drive America into poverty even. Well, when we're sending $100 billion to a far off nation to protect their borders, when our people are already suffering with higher prices of food and other commodities and, and gasoline and other energy, and our borders are porous, we're living in bizarro world. You yeah. know, I mean, that 100, 100 billion would take care of a lot of homeless people in this country, for instance. Yeah, absolutely. Good, good point. Uh, tell us about your early career and how you became an options trader, because it's one of those colorful, uh, serendipitous uh, moments. Um, I'll let you tell it in your own words, but I wish I could you know, tell it in amazing. your words, John. <laughs> I love your accent. <laughs> oh, you know where that comes from, and, and we could talk about your visits to the Emerald Isle, but maybe that'll be for later. Some of my my finest, my most funnest times, yes. Um, well, I uh, I can't say I was born a poor child, although I was born on the wrong side of the tracks, and I lived in an enclave of uh, of uh, tradesmen in one of the northern suburbs of Chicago. So by world standards, we were very well off, but by by uh, U.S. standards. And definitely the uh, Chicagoland area and suburb standards, uh, we were, you know, right about on the poverty line or thereabouts. And uh, my mom had nine pregnancies in 11 years. I was born when she was uh, just before her 19th birthday. Uh, my dad was a carpenter. And um, so I learned my, my mom would um, walk me around. Uh, on a on a paper route at five years old, and I would hang those um, advertising mailers that they used to have with the little green rubber bands. Chicagoans and Americans would know what I'm talking about, and would put them on doors uh, doorknobs a couple days a week, and I would get fifty cents for doing that. And my mom would 
put it in an Alka-Seltzer jar. It was an anti-acid tablet, about the size of a quarter. And I started saving my money early. And I couldn't wait till I was 12 because I was then going to be old enough to caddy. Um, back then, child labor laws were, you know, you couldn't really start working before you were 12. And I started caddying um, at a, um, a, a well-to-do North Shore Country Club, Northmore Country Club in uh, Ravinia, which is where I grew up, is inside of Highland Park, suburb of Chicago. And most of the guys I caddied for were um, uh, wealthy Jewish men that were either business owners or commodities traders or brokers. And I didn't know what this meant, but I spent so much time with these, you know, men in their 30s, 40s, and 50s as a young young boy, tween, teen, teenage guy. I learned a lot from them. I loved their style. I loved their lifestyle and really kind of became my surrogate family. Spent a lot of time at the golf course caddying in the winter also. Um, so I went to school to be an accountant, got an accounting degree, didn't really like it, bored me a lot, and um, got a job as a, a stockbroker, assistant stockbroker during the Jimmy Carter years, John, the malaise of, you know, uh, on a big day, the U uh, New York Stock Exchange would touch 11 million shares. That was like a record back in 1977. Wow. And now yeah. we do that in the first uh, millisecond, right? There's orders that big. So um, um, I, I was getting frustrated selling economic development bonds in um, Jimmy Carter Malay's uh, farm farmlands of Indiana. Uh, and I said, well, who makes all the money in this business? And they said that the guy's on the floor. And I was like, the floor? And then I go, yeah, either New York or Chicago. And then light went off. Um, so I got in touch with a series of weird events, just kismet, got back in touch with some people back in Chicago. I actually got a job as a clerk on the floor, and I met one of the guys that I caddied for who had sold a woman's haberdashery and was just dabbling on the floor. This is back in 78. Options weren't even five years old yet, and there were a lot of speculators down there just selling premium or punting, right? Yeah, and um, yeah. I had learned in a couple months of clerking how to um, put on some spreads. I, I convinced Julian, Julian Good, rest his soul, um, who I caddied for, one of the one of the men at that club. I uh, convinced him to let me try putting on a spread. I put it on. It worked. Uh, came back a few days later and said, okay, Mr. Good, we could take this off. He risked about 1500 bucks, and we did more than double that. I forgot exactly uh, how much we made in those few days. And he said, oh, my God, can you do this again? And I said, there's my opening. I can, but you got to get me on a seat. And um, he was the first guy to back me, I um, or the only guy to back me. I um, I didn't have, as the book, Mark, you know, Jack's book, Market Wizards, uh, depicts, I, I really had a rough go in the beginning, learned some great lessons about uh, despair and, and discipline and the, the combination of, uh, of your emotions and um, really trying to stay within the, the stripes or the lines of the pitch, um, so to speak. And I steeled myself away to studying every night um, theoretical values this is before computers. Uh, I mean, there were mainframes, of course, but before personal computers. Yeah. And I would get a printout out of the mainframe of um, theoretical values. I traded um, a very volatile stock named Teledyne. It was kind of a what a lot of your viewers probably won't know is that um, before 1981 or 82, there wasn't any indexes. There weren't any equity indices to benchmark uh, the health of a sector or the market overall. So um, investors made up their own baskets and they used certain in industrial high, flyer, high flyers as surrogates to the marketplace. Uh, IBM, Honeywell, Texas Instruments, Polaroid, 
uh, Kodak, and Teledyne. Teledyne was a conglomerate. That stock I traded was super illiquid. And when the market was going to turn and the, you know, Wall Street brokers were all talking to each other and they needed to start getting long, for instance, option orders would flood in under the floor from all over and uh, end by calls in these names and, and a handful of others, Superior, Superior Oil and, and some other, you know, uh, mini mining, um, uh, 3M, Minnesota mini, um, Mining and Minerals, whatever, 3M, and Teledyne. So the stock was very volatile. That's where I was uh, hanging out as a clerk for the guy I worked for. And when my when Julian backed me, I uh, jumped in head first. And then within uh, two months, had my head handed to me, literally almost, you know, checked out. I lost most of the money that he grub staked me with. And it was, um, it was actually 40, 44 years ago this May, uh, Delta Airlines um, crashed on takeoff at O'Hare. And some 500 people died on that plane. And back in the day, there used to be a late edition newspaper. It, it came out after the close of the market, like an hour, within an hour after the close, and it would have all of the closing prices of the top stocks for the day. And that's how we knew how the market did if you, you know, didn't call your broker because there was no CNBC or anything like that yet, right? So I'm walking, I'm after trading, I stayed and did some of my homework. I had this terrible day. And I'm walking downstairs with one of my colleagues to the lobby of the Board of Trade building. And they had a cigarette and candy uh, counter there where they had the late edition. And so I picked it up to get all the closing prices. And the headlines on the late edition, John, were this Delta Airlines flight, whatever, had just crashed. And it had a picture of the broken fuselage. And it said, you know, 535 people died. And I looked to my colleague and I said, the way I feel right now, I would trade places with any one of those people. Yeah. That's how bad I felt um, having disappointed Julian, lost all this money. Now, my my trading problem was I traded too big. I bought too much premium. And it was the Memorial Day weekend, and they took the air out of the premium. They knocked the volatilities down, and boom, my my position got marked to market, and I lost the majority of my trading account. Wow. So that was a big lesson for me. And then presumably, and you obviously did recover from that, and you went on to prosper. Yes. I, um, uh, I still had about $15,000 in my account, which in... 1978 was, uh, it was 1979. There was that was still a decent amount of money, um, and maybe like fifty or seventy-five thousand dollars today. So I, it wasn't like I was out of um, bullets or out of opportunities, but I had to really hunker down and you know guard my shekels, so to speak, yeah. right, and and protect myself going forward. Um, so I started, and I've been doing this all my life, um, enlisting people who I trusted as sounding boards and asking them questions and getting feedback. I mean, I didn't want to be a nuisance, but I did impose myself on other traders who had been down there for a little while and just trying to triangulate on, you know, what's their, what's the key to their longevity or their stability, so to speak. And I learned there's a, a wide range of answers there. Okay. There are, there are those that have a really fast twitch capability and they would scalp. And there were those who would plan out over months and there were tape readers and there were chartists and point and figure people. And I found a group of guys that were, were time spreaders, meaning they would just trade the front month to the next month and keep that relationship intact and trade the, order flow that would come in in two two different options or four different options. Very disciplined, very mm -hmm. regimen, almost like therapy. Yeah. Um, I left Teledyne, which was crazy moving, you know, 
5, 10, 15 points a day back and forth to go and trade in Boeing, which only traded maybe a half to one and a half dollars range a day. Still, you can make money in options, but you didn't have this big risk. And I got it out of my system. You went through the booms and the busts and the booms again. You saw crashes and flash, uh, flash crashes and so on. Uh, and you mentioned that disaster day that you would trade in places with those unfortunate people who lost their lives in that terrible plane crash. So was there a high rate of attrition at the CBOE that people lost it all? You know, that's a great question. Right before I started, April of 1978, your viewers should look it up, right? We crashed up, okay? The market, there was a short squeeze and the market couldn't um, open on Friday of expiration that April. Back then we only had expirations every um, uh, quarter, okay? So um, there was less liquidity and you know more uh, open interest for each of these expirations. I mean, IBM opened up on opened on Monday morning. So there was this major short squeeze of um uh public interest in calls that the um professionals hadn't bought back and now they were stuck trying to buy stock against their expiring calls that were mm -hmm. out of the money on Thursday and in the money on Friday, okay? And yeah. I give you that as background to your question. For about three years, when somebody would say, what happened to Tony Saliba or what happened to Jack Brown? They would say, he went out in April. And even though three Aprils had passed since, we knew what they were talking about. It was a bloodbath. So many, the, the attrition was like maybe 30% of the traders. So I traded on the floor for about 15 years and I'm a numbers guy and I did groupings of all sorts of data. And we had about a thousand members um, on the floor and about 2000 support people. Okay. And members could be market makers or brokers. Okay. And I would say in April of 78, probably 250 to 300 guys, you know, got the ax, they blew out. Maybe some of them got um, recapitalized and came back. Some were driving cabs, okay, taxi wow. cabs. <laughs> high, uh, high risk, high, high stakes, yeah. and high pressure. Trading has changed a lot since then, Tony. Um, on in options in the equity markets, the Florida, New York Stock Exchange is a, a shadow of its former self, even though it exists. It's all gone high tech. It's all gone electronic. There's maybe dozens on the floor. I don't know what the number are at the New York Stock Exchange. Right. Uh, CBOE, probably the same. Everything's all computers, advanced yes. computers yes. and algorithms. Mm -hmm. Big capital, big combines. So another uh, metric that we kept track of, that I kept track of for a long time, was the number of registered liquidity providers. Um, so... Uh, I traded on the floor till 91. My brother took over. Uh, we had a DPM, a designated primary market maker operation. There were about 70 of them at the CBOE that um, were, were responsible for the fair and orderliness of fairness and orderliness of the uh, pit for that um, underlying. And we kept that another um, 10 years. Um, I kept track of the liquidity providers, the LPOs, liquidity providing organizations. And they ranged from um, sole props, you know, young men and women who were just grub stake, doing it like I did it back in the 70s, all the way up to the big boys that were um, uh, enterprises that had uh, maybe even multinational reach, but definitely were on each of the exchanges uh, uh, in the U.S., and um, the, the number, just to give you an idea, the number of um, LPOs before the 2008 financial crisis was um, about 180 firms that were uh, individuals, firms or whatever, which was down from about maybe about uh, 
500 at the turn of the century because this is a rich tapestry of liquidity provision in the U.S. where we all have different uh, market timing and risk reward profiles and um, interests in um, uh, how we're trading and, and what style of trading uh, that we're doing. So it all, all came to the forefront on the screen with really tight markets. But then um, electronic trading started to creep in. People started going upstairs. Liquidity started you know, drying out. So markets were getting a little wider and thinner. And these big companies like Citadel and Susquehanna and uh, well, Citibank packed it up a couple years ago, but um, Simplex and Wolverine, there's about a dozen um, not to leave out IMC or Optiver, all great, you know, filled with great men and women and great companies, yep. but heavy in computer power and heavy in capital and heavy in quantitative analysis and algorithms, as opposed to you and I there yep. stretching it out, even on our personal computer, um, getting buffeted. Now, the list the number of liquidity providers that are listed are in the dozens now they're down maybe under 30 uh total in the us to to uh maintain that conversely though i will say technology has benefited the customer one one last little vignette about the recent past in 03 there was a big debate in the options industry about payment for order flow yeah. Equities had been doing payment for order flow for a long time. And I was completely against payment for order flow in the options market unless that payment could make its way somehow to the customer because it's the customer's order, right? Yeah. So the way that has occurred is by the brokers reducing or eliminating commissions, okay? And um, a tighter bid ask uh, in options than ever before. Things that we never could provide um, in open outcry on the floor, where you had you know one, two, or three tick wide markets for the most part in a lot of the more active stocks. So technology's definitely benefited the retail investor um, and the big combines at the cost of the middle guys, the, the mid-sized yeah. top yeah. traders. Yeah, you know, it's, a, it's a massive uh, change, revolutionary in, in that sense. You just look at how NASDAQ changed over the years um, when they introduced all the regulation, order handling rules, and all the market makers, the human market makers, lost their jobs, and then the machines took over. Crypto, in a sense, is a, a product or an evolution or a, a, a consequence, maybe, of all this technology. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, big machine power to drive it. I mean, you couldn't have done it back in the day, crypto, right. because it, it would uh, it would be inconsistent with that for right. type of marketplace. Well, it's a, it's a very um, regimented, democratized accounting process where anonymous um, miners, uh, computer operators from anywhere in the world uh, sort of guess through algorithmic um, uh, uh, attempts at solving a string of value to verify a transaction. And that can happen, you know, in some number of moments. Um, used to be many minutes. Now it's, it's uh, condensed. And they're rewarded for doing that. But it's very um, open and... Um, democratized form of accountancy or of, of um, verification of that trade, then it's before it's put on the blockchain. And that is a, um, you know, that is a way that uh, you have an immutable um, ledger of these transactions that you can go back and look at and, and verify what the, what the wallet is. You may not know who owns the wallet, but, you know, law enforcement can find that out if they needed to, I yep. imagine. Um, so it's it's an outcropping of uh, supercomputers and the abil ability to do this work, but it's also, you know, an ingenious idea that some people are trying to do this, you know, fully with securities 
fully with real estate, you know, fully with um, art, anything that is of value that you want to keep an audit trail of. Yeah, and and the blockchain is one the underlying technology in many yes. in many cases. Um, your business interests are are wide and varied and and really interesting because you referred to my accent I guess earlier being from <laughs> Ireland but I'm living here in New York New Jersey um and so that's dear to both our hearts because you have a big investment if you could tell us over in the Emerald Isle it's a and it plays to your passions in golf yes well that's right so earlier earlier we talked about my first real big job as a caddy and I. You know, people ask me to play golf all the time, and my standard answer is, oh, I'm sorry, I respect the game too much. Um, <laughs> because, you know, I play military golf, John, you know, right, left, <laughs> right, left. <laughs> so I um, caddied for m- many years, about 14 years. Um, and um, I sat down one day when I was living in Stockholm and calculated how many trips around the track. Uh, I had done as a caddy. And I was that kid who never wanted to go home. I was there first crack of dawn and the last loop out, I was begging for it. Some days I would, you know, uh, many days, 36, you know, some days I would go 45 holes and, um, and I caddied on Christmas and New Year's because my the Roaring Twenties, the guys that we caddied for, would go out and try to play at least three holes with an orange ball. And that is my passion. I'm um, a director of um, Western Golf Association, heavily involved in the Evans Scholars uh, Scholarship Foundation. And um, also my family office owns part of a uh, insurance company. And after the 08 financial crisis, as you know, um, being uh, Irish, that in um, in the UK and thereabouts they call bankruptcy administration, right? So there was a property that went into administration, and the at the time the um, uh, what is it the the ten most um, uh, the largest countries the um, C ten or no what is it um, C ten uh, you know the economic um, uh, countries that, well, they threw Russia out, but anyways, they were all meeting. Um, they agreed to m- meet at a brand new golf course called Loch Ern. And it's properly in Northern Ireland. So it's a UK property. And it's on the Ireland, uh, Northern Ireland uh, border. Um, and all of our staff is from Enskillen in the Fermanagh um, area co- county. So mm-hmm. our staff is all Irish men and women. Our, our, um, chef is Irish. He locally sources everything. And, um, the, um, uh, this economic summit was planned for 2011 or 2012, but with the financial crisis, the, uh, grocer who, bought all this property and borrowed a big chunk of money from the banks, um, filed for administration and had to give up the property. But the UK government did not want to um, disappoint uh, the economic summit. So they kept it going through the summit. And uh, when we picked, when we bought it for pennies on the dollar and I went to visit the first time, there are pictures all over the hotel and the clubhouse and the restaurant of the property of Obama and this before they kicked Putin out of it, um, G10. It was a G11. That's what. It was. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's like the G8 or G9, but um, and Angela Merkel and all the heads of state, it, because we held it there. It's got a helipad. It's gorgeous. Um, we brought in new management, filled up the hotel put on programs for destination. It's just beautiful, beautiful country. My family and I have visited a number of times. The Irish people are so lovely. And and the Northern Irish people, you know, are, are lovely too. It's just a real dichotomy. I think there's a saying that you probably have heard out of Belfast that is um, the road from Belfast 
to Dublin is much shorter than the road from Dublin to Belfast because people go visit Be Dublin all the time. Yeah. But hardly anybody <laughs> from Dublin is visiting Belfast. <laughs> well, they got to go up and visit that golf course and play it uh, some rounds. Loch Ern, it's gorgeous. Look it up online. Um, I just can't say enough for the staff and the wonderful people there. And it's a lovely, you know, we went to see, look for the Loch Ness Monster and everything. It's just gorgeous. <laughs> it's God's country, John. Yes. Yes, yeah, certainly is. It certainly is. And I can see why you, uh, you're, you're passionate about golf even more since you bought that beautiful property. And I'm sure you're taking great and loving care of it. How do you see the markets in the year ahead? Well, so I think we have some turning points here regarding like this, you know, ridiculous budget that just was uh, passed here mm. and the continued, you know, bastardization of our currency. Um, but I think the Fed has, you know, they have this desire to make sure things don't go completely off the rails. I'm bearish personally in the U.S. stock market, but but um, I know there's a lot of money, pent, pent up funds to be uh, committed. And um, somebody showed me a chart yesterday of where we are from the top compared to 08. And we've got a long way to go if we're going to yeah. emulate 08. Um, but I just don't think people want to suffer that much pain. And thus, thus we have um, uh, buying at every dip. Look at look at the VIX. It can't get up off its butt. You yeah. know, it, it's gonna it hangs around in the uh, low twenties. So there's not very much fear in the marketplace. I yeah. I tend to think we're gonna have a, a continued choppy market with with early part of the year probably trending lower and um, a change mid year to close it out higher. If if I had a gun to my head. So are we going to have a recession next year? Are we going to have a soft landing? Where do you see it? We're technically in a recession. I, I just hate the way people, you know, want to change the meaning of things. Okay. We've had two consecutive quarters of, of um, contraction. And now they want to say, well, I mean, they did this with the, um, uh, you know, uh, consumer goods um, ratings in terms of inflation and uh, dropout, you know, the core rate versus the overall rate. So we're technically in a re recession, but I just don't think it's bad enough for people right now. Um, they want to make it worse. I personally think we can solve everything here by unlocking the rich energy resources we have in this country and then get to work on clean nuclear and within a decade have everything under control. But in the short term, fossil fuels are the way to go. You can't fly a plane on windmill power or solar energy. So people have to figure out that this is going to take longer than they want it to and should be done right. Um, soft landing, probably um, maybe funding from the government, maybe more forms of UBI like we had with the PPP. But you sound quite optimistic and certainly um, bullish about the future of America, leaving yes, aside fears about the dollar and all kinds of weird yes. stuff that's going on out there. And maybe energy independence will come about at some point. Well, I, I think America is the greatest experiment uh, in human history. We, as Reagan said, were always at risk of losing our freedoms here within a generation. But I think generally the fabric of the country is strong. And I defy anyone to show another process, another economic format beyond uh, other than capitalism that has raised as many people out of poverty globally, you know, over the last hundred years. Okay. And, you know, mostly in this country, but it has a ripple effect and it spreads. So I'm generally bullish uh, on the country. I'm generally bullish on our way of commerce. And I think there's a lot of innovation. I think what we just went through with these um, crypto debacles, which the earlier ones were over leverage, which the lending and the rates, lending rates were out of control without any safeguards, a bunch of oops. And then this fraud with, with, as I call them, scam 
Bankman fraud. Um, I think, you know, that'll build a base and also see higher highs too. So yeah, I'm, I'm bullish over the uh, midterm. Tony Saliba, thank you. John, thank you so much. It was really an honor and, and a privilege. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.